Hey there, Purpose Warriors. Welcome to the Awaken to Purpose podcast. This is Dr. Brunel from drbrunel.com, where we believe that every season in your life serves a greater purpose. If you're new to the podcast, here's what you need to know. We are a community of purpose warriors who believe that God's best version of ourselves is hidden on the inside of us, just waiting to be awakened as we grow in our relationship and continue to say yes to what God has called us to do in the earth. We know that God's purpose for our lives was preordained and the reason why he created us. So every other week, this podcast seeks to explore how to awaken to your purpose from a practical standpoint and become God's best version of you. And we do this by touching upon our five pillars of purpose, faith, relationship, identity, resiliency, and stewardship. If you want to know more about our five pillars of purpose, head over to my website at www.drvernell.com backslash podcast. So before we dive in, I need to share with you that this podcast is being brought to you by my new book, From Pain to Purpose, where I share actionable steps, biblical principles, and life lessons on how I discovered my purpose after a painful and unexpected divorce and was left to raise two children with more than a million dollars of debt, zero access, and a negative network. My book is available on my website, again, at www.drbrunel.com, also on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or wherever books are sold. So if you want to learn more about how to release limiting beliefs, overcome financial difficulties, experience radical breakthroughs, and step courageously into your purpose, then grab your copy today. And remember that God can use whatever unfair or unjust act, any rejection or hurtful experience, and transform your pain into your purpose. So let's jump right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Awaken to Purpose podcast. I have a very special guest today. Her name is Brenda Denbinston, who is a chemical engineer with over 15 years of experience in the mining and manufacturing industry. Originally from Zimbabwe, she moved to Australia to pursue her engineering degree in order to commence a career in cosmetic engineering. But she ended up turning dirt into gold in the mining industry and hasn't looked back since. She is passionate about giving back to the industry and over the years has won scholarships for women in leadership, participated in university and company graduate open days, as well as being invited to speak to multiple groups about the numerous opportunities in engineering. More recently, she has commenced coaching women in male-dominated industries to increase their impact and create a purpose-driven career. Welcome, Brenda. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so excited you're here today. Hello, Vanel. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I really want to jump right into your story because I think you have an incredible story to share with everyone. So I'm just going to turn it over to you right now. Thank you, Vanel. Yes, I suppose like everyone heard in the bio, I'm from Zimbabwe originally. I have 15 years experience as a chemical engineer in the mining and manufacturing industry. I've worked with top tier companies across the board, including the federal government of Australia. And I'm currently one of the committee members of the National Association of Women in Operations, which essentially is a big body of women who want to empower gender diversity and have more women represented in male dominated fields. I'm also the founder of the Chronicles of a Female Engineer. It's a YouTube series, which really inspires women to 
take up engineering as well as those of us who are in the industry to excel. Now, this hasn't always been the case. So I almost lost it all about a decade ago. And I guess I want to take your listeners back to that. (laughs) (laughs) So it was the 11th of November, 2011. And it was my boyfriend's birthday at the time I was working fly in, fly out. And I'd come back to Sydney for the weekend for his birthday. And I'd planned a romantic retreat. Think about a cabin in the woods, horse riding, go-karting. So the weekend was planned. I'd hired a car for us to go down there and I was driving. The Mm -hmm. sun was shining. The music was playing and the vibes were just nice. And my boyfriend said he needed to make a pit stop. Mm -hmm. He had agreed to collect a parcel for his friend. So it was inconvenient, but we went over to the shops. We got there. And he realized that he had left his ID. Mm -hmm. So he asked me to go get it on his behalf. I had mine. So I went on in. The ladies in the post office started looking for the parcel and they said, oh, look, there's quite a lot of packages at the back there. Why don't you go get a coffee or something? It's quite a lot of stuff in the back. You can see it. I sort of peered in the back and I could see that, well, yeah, there's quite a lot of packages over there. So I went over and got a coffee. Mm -hmm. As I got my coffee, I was dreaming of the itinerary and everything that was planned. A few minutes later, I went back into the post office and eventually they had found the box and they gave it to me. It was quite a large box. It was a bit uncomfortable. I went outside with the box. Mm -hmm. And as I was carrying out, there was two strange things that happened. Not only did my boyfriend not come towards me to collect the package that I had just collected, Mm -hmm. instead, I saw two undercover police officers coming towards me. Okay. I was shocked. I was like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Not only was that package being tracked, but it contained illegal substances. Oh my gosh. Drugs. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't see in the box. So to me, this was just a big mistake. So I thought I'd just go over to the police station mm-hmm. and tell them that this was all a big mistake. Was your boyfriend still there? Was he watching all of this happen while they approached you? So while they approached me, he started shouting out loud and making a big scene, which was strange to me. But he got carted off and ferried off in a different car. Essentially, that was the last scene that I have of him. That was the last visual was him shouting out. I don't even remember the things he was saying, but mm-hmm. he left. And then I went to the police station and I proceeded to tell them what had happened. I didn't plead the Fifth Amendment. I didn't ask for the services of a lawyer because I didn't think I needed one. Right. Several hours later, they just sort of said, look, we are unable to proceed. So you're going to have to face the judge tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So not only was I now having to spend the night in the detention center, I was having all these thoughts running through my head, like, how the heck did we get here? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Okay, let's just have one sleep and this will all be sorted out tomorrow, right? And I somehow got to sleep. And the next morning, I was ferried to this little spot. I thought I was going to go to a courthouse, but there's no courthouse. There's a little room in the detention center, which essentially has a small little box where you can see the judge. Mm -hmm. and a little telephone where the legal aid lawyer calls you. So I hadn't even met the lawyer. I got a call, Brenda. So I had to come over there and pick up the handset. And essentially she said, look, I've got your file here. What we're going to do is we're going to try to get you bail. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? And I said, yes, that's what I need. Thank you. It was pretty much like a one minute conversation. And then I hung up and I just thought that was it. Okay. Then the judge says, Brenda, and then he read my file and there was not much else said. All I remember was bail denied. What were the charges against you? So the charge was alleged importation of cocaine. (gasps) Okay. So I was just like, what? 
it's literally like you're alone. There's no one to like look left, look right. I couldn't get back onto the lawyer and say, excuse me, what just happened? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was just left and ferried off and like, sorry, who's next sort of thing. And you're ferried along. Mm -hmm. And I found myself being escorted to a maximum security female prison in Sydney, Australia. I don't think oh, you can even really imagine. Get my breath. Okay, so you planned this whole romantic getaway for you and your boyfriend, right? He left his ID, asked you to go and pick up a package for him at the post office. After you went and got some coffee, you picked up the package. You then went outside with the package and you were met by some undercover police officers. It's like you can't make this stuff up. That's correct. You were taken to a detention center and I'm assuming booked and had to stay overnight. And when you got to the courthouse, your bail was denied. What happened next? Like, oh my gosh. Exactly. So as I cried in the back of the paddy wagon, we call these things paddy wagons, essentially just a little police truck that you get put in the back of. And I went to the prison. So I was afraid Mm. I was scared. I was like, what am I going to be doing in here? Who can I trust? Who can I even tell that I'm an engineer who goes to university and gets honors and ends up in here? And so there were just all these things running in my mind. So can I ask a question really quickly? And I'm sorry to cut you off. Just curious to know. So when they carted you off in the paddy wagon, did you have any idea of how long you were going to be there? How long you were going to be incarcerated? What was supposed to be next for you? No. So I had no idea. So essentially I'm now in the dark. I'm essentially like you're wondering, I didn't know what was next. I didn't know if this was it. I didn't know if I could get out there tomorrow. I needed to get a lot of things in place. I had to get a lawyer. I had to get that lawyer to read my file. I needed the files to be registered in a courthouse. I needed a date to be set to get bail heard or bail approved. I needed all these other things. I needed to get friends to write letters of referrals to talk to my character I had to write work to say, hey, look, she's gainfully employed and she works in a place where drugs are not even allowed when she gets regularly tested. And this is just out of character. Mm -hmm. So a whole lot of material now had to actually be put together to simply even request bail. I didn't know any of this, but I came to know of it. And this was all ahead of me, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I get in there and I'm given the green. In Australia, we wear prison greens. (laughs) It's not orange like the show. (laughs) So got my green outfit, had to go through a medical. I was crying throughout the whole thing. They were asking me my name, my address and all these things. And I was just like, I don't belong here. They're like, yeah, just tighten up buttercup. You're going to be in here for a while sort of thing. They were just like, we ain't got no time for this sort of thing. And I was just like, wow, like how has this happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So essentially I got in there and I was in a cell with, I don't even remember who she was at the time, but it was just a thin bed, cold, dark floors. It was a depressive environment. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered how long I'd been there. And I was just crying and just wondering how I was going to tell my family. Because at this stage, I just thought it was just going to be like a one-nighter, big mistake, get back to life. But now I was thinking, well, how am I going to call my brother, at least because I've got a brother here in the country, and let him know what's going on so he can at least try and find a lawyer and things for me? How am I going to call work? What are they going to say? What happened to that rental car that I just left at the shopping center? Like all these things were just spinning around in my mind. Right. Yeah. So essentially managed to get my brother's number. Luckily, I've got a thing for numbers and I remembered my brother's number and I put it on the list a few days later and I called him and I said, look, I couldn't hide because the phones that ring out of prison start with, you are receiving a collect call from Silverwater Prison. Do you accept? Yes. So he would have heard that and been like, huh? 
and sort of said, yeah, I accept. And I was crying and I said, look, I'm in prison. I picked up a parcel and had drugs in it. I didn't think it had drugs, but apparently it did. And now they don't want to let me out. I'm in jail. I need to get out of here. I need a lawyer. I need bail. I need money. I don't know what I need, but I need your help. And so he started looking for it and said, look, just stay safe. I'll come visit you as soon as I can. Let me try to get some more details. And yeah, so that's essentially started the chain. He got a lawyer. The lawyer told him what he needed to do, started to inquire my friends to get some paperwork together. And I called work. And I don't know if your listeners have ever been in an unexpected situation, right? Because I mean, probably no one's really been in jail (laughs) like I have. But when you get into a situation that's unexpected, Mm -hmm. perhaps you're on holiday and all of a sudden you get an accident that changes everything, or you've been wanting to get pregnant and finally you do, but there's a diagnosis that changes everything. Sometimes it's that person that you talk to, the words that they say that either make or break that situation. And that's what this phone call did for me. When I called work and let them know that I was fighting for my life, essentially, that I was now embroiled in a legal battle. And I was working to clear my name. Mm -hmm. They said, you're still welcome. I guess that was just a real turning point for me. Mm -hmm. Because I realized that there was a future. (laughs) There was something waiting for me on the outside. I held true to that and knew that I was coming forward and something to look forward to. And that I still could be gainfully employed. In the prison, there was a little chapel that we could go to on the weekends. I would go there and be edified, read my little Bible. And there was a little scripture there that was so powerful, Jeremiah 29, 11. Mm. And it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you Mm -hmm. and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Mm. And I was like, wow, Lord, you have a hope and a future for me. I may be in the valley right now, (laughs) the shadow of death, Mm -hmm. but there is a way out. And I just held on true to that. And I was just like, look, I'll be positive. I will see what (laughs) could be worse around here. Mm -hmm. And there was plenty of things. Like if I was in a Zimbabwean prison, I could have had a whole lot of things that could have been worse than there. Mm -hmm. I cringe now when I think of it, but like the squalor, the food that would have been maybe rotten or cold or who knows if we could have gotten three meals a day. I had access to amenities in the Australian prison, which I may not have had if this was another country. Okay. Blankets, oh, toilets, <laughs> just all those things. So I was grateful. I found small things to be grateful about to help me as I went through. And it ended up being six weeks that I spent in there mm-hmm. until I was able to get out. Were you out on bail or were the charges dismissed? After six weeks. So after six weeks, I was out on bail. Mm-hmm. You had a legal battle to fight. I had a legal battle to fight. I was restricted to the little state that I lived in. So I lived in a different state, 600 kilometers away from the town. And I essentially couldn't leave that little town. I had to report twice a day to the police station. And the police station, so this town has got 5,000 people. And most of them work at the mine where I was working. Wow. And I had to report twice a day. And this is like on the main street. There's only one street. And there's a police station at the front of that street. And then you go down and you go to the shopping center and stuff. Mm -hmm. And yes, I would shamefully try and pick a time when there was the least amount of people driving past because they'd all notice me, the black girl (laughs) in town. Like a sore thumb, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there was all that shame surrounding the reporting. There was the friends events that would happen that I couldn't attend to because I couldn't leave the town. People would always ask, oh, are you coming here? Are you coming there? And I'd be like, no, 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 I've got to stay here. I was quite embarrassed about the whole story for a long time. And I didn't know if it was how it was going to end. Mm -hmm. Like, was I actually going to be free? Because I was still on charges. 
Yeah. And so I was sort of hanging in the balance. I had two pathways running essentially out my career that I was focused in and I was trying to spend most of my time there because that was something I was working well in my life. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, there was this, what if it ends now? What if this doesn't go well? What if I end up back in the prison that I've just left? Because these charges are serious and there's a long mm-hmm. sentence that's attached to it. So even though I was out, I was still not free, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely. That is so traumatic. So as you kind of think back over what you went through, you talked about just the scripture that was your anchor scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, and you found these things to be thankful to God for. How did that really help you once you got released out on bail and carry you through even trying to fight this legal battle for yourself? Yeah, certainly. So when I was back in the little town, I was able to go back to church and be surrounded by community and getting prayer. And my friends, obviously now, some of them, the closest circle knew about it and they would pray for me and support me. So certainly seeing and having that connection and that family and that support was really a key aspect of my, I don't want to call it recovery, but my (laughs) return to normal life, so to speak. I really think when you're in a troubled time, the people that you have around you can either pull you down and deeper into the depths or they can surround you and add positivity and frame things in a hopeful light. And so that was really key for me. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I was able to surround myself with hope of a future <laughs> with the trial, with the lawyers meeting. I mean, it ended up taking several months for now. It took yeah. a while to get through. And it was when I was in that courthouse listening to the defense, the things I had told them in that first interview, which I thought was helping me claw back out, they were now twisting it and using it. Like what they say, anything you say can and will be used against you. They mean it. That is very true. Yeah. Yeah. They mean it. Yeah. It was harrowing listening to those things and just shaking my head like, wow, this is why they say don't (laughs) just say no comment. Yeah. Where was God for you? Like people were praying over you during this time and you were really standing on that scripture. How did your relationship with God evolve as a result of that? I think my relationship with God really evolved because I knew that he had a hope and a future. Like leaning on that verse, Mm -hmm. I was knowing that this was for something. Like I think as time went by, probably not in that exact moment, but as time went by, I realized that I think it's a bit cliche now and people just say it, but I believed it, that life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. Yeah. And I was like, Lord, what is the lesson that I'm learning from this event? What can I actually take away? And I think (laughs) (laughs) initially, I mean, I went through those phases that people go through, the denial and the doubt and the why me and the pity party. And then I realized that I just had to take ownership. I had to take stock of what was in front of me. I couldn't just deny that I'd just gone through this. Couldn't deny that I'd just been in prison for six weeks. And I couldn't deny that I was in a trial. But what I did know was that I still had family. I did know that I still was gainfully employed. I did know that I was actually still able to pay these bills that were just mounting up. So trust in God. (laughs) It was crazy, but I just kept getting a trust in me. There's a hope and there's a future. And I think it took a while for me to really understand what that future looked like and what it meant. And I knew exactly when work said that I was still welcome and I was able to go back, that I wanted to give back to the industry. Mm -hmm. And I started giving back, maybe in a participation kind of way. I'd go to conferences and I'd 
always be sort of trying to better myself in the industry, but I was like, actually, I need to give back in a different way. Like I was always complaining about, oh, there's not enough women in engineering. No one's looking and seeing that we've got things that need to be improved around us, whether it's mother's rooms, whether it's facilities, whether it's the Mm -hmm. clothes we wear. And I was always just looking and thinking, someone needs to just sort this out. I was like, actually, Brenda, you're the one who needs to sort it out. Like you have these things on your heart for a reason. You look left, look right. No one else cares. You need to care. And that's why I founded that Chronicles of a Female Engineer YouTube series, which really talks to breaking myths about engineering. Like people think it's dirty. People think it's for boys. People think it's just building cars and making bridges. But it's not. It's more than that. And women play an important role in this space. And so really just busting those myths, empowering the women who are here to stay and excel. How do we build visibility? How do we speak up once we're in the industry? How do we actually make a change and shape our world? You found your purpose in the hell that you had gone through, pretty much. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I want to ask a couple of questions that I asked all of my guests. And you talked about life lessons. So from your story, what additional life lessons have you learned about your purpose? So additional lessons about my purpose is that certainly that your past doesn't determine your future. You can rewrite your story today. So my purpose is to really talk to those people that feel frustrated, Mm -hmm. that feel stuck, that feel unsure about whether to make that move or not. They're quite comfortable in what they are in right now, but they know it's not what lights them up. They know it's not what fulfills them. They know it's not exactly who they're meant to be. And I want to talk to those people and say, look, you are able to dig deep and actually find out what lights you up. You're able to find out what your strengths are and work in your strengths day to day, Mm -hmm. find things that are crafted specifically for you. I've just lost my train of thought. (laughs) But yes. Okay. You're just talking about you kind of like some life lessons that where you've been in your past doesn't dictate where you can go in your future. I think that's absolutely something that we all need to hear that we have the power and the ability to make those changes. If you don't like what it looks like right now, then do something about it. Don't fall into self-doubt and self-pity. Just keep moving forward and make some active changes in your life. That's exactly what I wanted to say. Thank you. (laughs) You are so welcome. I do have just a couple of more questions to ask you before we wrap this up. I know I want to be respectful of your time. So what do you know about God that you wish the whole world knew? I wish the whole world knew that God is a personal God. Like he's not just out there. He's not just some words in a book. He is a father. He is someone that you can have a relationship with. He is someone that you can pray to and actually get guidance from. I think the world has tainted the relationship that you can have with a father by words like religion or spirituality. And people can make mistakes and that mirrors poorly on God. God is God. God is the father. You are able to have a relationship with him. So I wish the world knew that they could strip away all the bad things that people have done and just look to the Father for who He is and who He made us to be and that He loves us and that He wants the best for us and He wants to guide us day by day. (laughs) Amen. You just shared so much and it was so good. Like, where can people find you if they're looking for you? People can find me on Instagram. Brenda Denbeston. Mm-hmm. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So people are free to come and get into my DMs, slide in there. I've got a program that I'm currently running called Purpose to Promotion. Mm-hmm. It's a six-week program for those of you who are feeling stuck and frustrated and want to just get your light shining in your eye again as you go in your nine to five in your careers. 
And anyone who is interested in engineering and wants to know more and is a woman, I want to talk to you. I want to inspire you and tell you about where you are meant to fit in into the puzzle. <laughs> I love it so much. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I absolutely enjoyed having you and I would love for you to come back. <laughs> I would love to be back again anytime for now. Oh, amen. Thank you, Brenda, so much. Well, you have an incredible day. And again, I'm so honored to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Same to you. Okay. Beyond my book, if you're interested in learning more about how to become God's best version of yourself by awakening to your purpose, consider enrolling in my online course, which you'll find on my website again, which is www.drvernell.com because God's love for you and the reason why he created you is greater than you will ever know. And guess what? He wants you to succeed in carrying out your purpose.